And Heavenly Father, we do quiet our hearts and humble ourselves before you. And we just give you praise. We've enjoyed much the worship of you today, exalting you in, in music and, and sitting under the teaching of, of Pastor Tom. And uh, Father, we just delight on these this day set aside to, to give you glory, to to fellowship together, to encourage our hearts together. We just pray that you'd cause us to call out for insight and to raise our voices for understanding from you. Father, may we seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, that we may understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of you, God. God, give us to press on to know you, and, and as we know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent, Father, that it may be eternal life to us. We ask that you give us a spirit of wisdom, that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that we may know the hope with which we've been called, and what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and may experience what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward those who believe, according to the work of your great might. Lord, as we approach the book of Genesis, we thank you for it. We pray you'd open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when I was in high school, I was a, a Boy Scout. And if you understand, who's laughing? Is that? <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of that. Let me, uh, let me start again. When I was in high school, I was in Boy Scouts. And as you probably know, you advance in scouting by earning merit badges along the way. Some are mandatory, some are elective. My dad suggested I, earned a, I earn a genealogy merit badge. Um, that's because my ancestors on both sides of our family had homesteaded and lived uh, in my hometown in Kansas from the 1870s. And uh, my, my father thought there would be a lot of material to, to research. And, and, and wow, was, was he right. Not only did I go back to the 1870s, uh, but all the way back to the Revolution. Um, and there's so many trees to follow, but this is the Milton line. Um, I think there's like nine generations there. Uh, Richard Milton Jr., I learned, was a patriot. Uh, he signed it as such in one of the censuses. Um, so... Um, you know, and as you see, there's quite a run here of R's, right? Other than Moses, everybody, everybody has an R. And uh, I think it was just kind of accidental that I did. I don't know that my dad really appreciated this run of R's necessarily. In fact, my older brother's named Chad, so I, I don't think that he had in, intentionally. But, uh, um, and if you're wondering, yes, I do have a son whose last name or first name starts with R. It's... Uh, um, you know him as Gage, but his first name is actually Richardson, which was based off this list, right? Um, the uh, elderly woman that helped me do the genealogy, she said, with this many Richards in your line, you must have a Richard for a son. And, and uh, um, I got close, Richardson, Richardson Gage. So if you see Gage, now you know the story of how he got his name. Um, but yes, here we are, and, and Rodney Floyd is me at the bottom, still living the dash, right? Um, so you say, well, what's the point of all this, Rod? Well, every, every dot here and every dash is, is a slice of life lived. You know, a lot happened during each of those 
dashes that we know very little about. You know, information, uh, you know, certainly the closer uh, to my, uh, the current day, the more information we, we have about these, my ancestors. Um, but let's, for sake of illustration, let's cut it to four, the last four. Robert Lee, Robert Minor, Rexdale, and, and Rodney Floyd. And, and think of your own, um, you know, ancestors, your great-grandparent, grandparent, your parent, and, and you. Right? And if you get, frame it like that, you get some context, kind of what we're looking at in the book of, of, of Genesis, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, uh, you know, truth be told, we probably know a lot more about these people than we know about our own families and uh, because of all the details listed in, in, in Scripture. But we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph for several weeks um, but his life is not in isolation. It's part of a, a much bigger, a bigger story. In Genesis 37.2, it says, These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Now, now what have we here? We've got a 17-year-old hanging with his older half-brothers who are actually... Uh, grown men. And, and just who is Joseph and, and, and who are these men? Well, to understand the life of Joseph, we need to be reminded of the life of Jacob. So turn with me to Genesis 29. We're going to look at preparation in the past. Because for Joseph to be born... And to have older half-brothers, Joseph needs some parents. And, and parents aren't born parents. Their parents are born single, right? And, and, and so you'll recall the account. Jacob had deceived his way into getting his father Isaac's blessing. And it was intended for his brother Esau. And after this deception, Jacob is sent away to his mother's brother. We'll call him Uncle Laban. Right, this is his mother's brother. And he was sent there in order to escape the murderous hatred of his brother Esau. That is in Genesis 27 and 28. Now we'll pick it up in Genesis 29 with, in, in verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now these, these weak eyes, you know, it's, it's, we're not exactly sure what that means. It's probably like dull eyes. Uh, could be delicate eyes. We're not really sure what it is. But it's, the way it's laid out here, it's, it's contrasted to Leah's beauty. So perhaps in a culture that enjoy, enjoyed dark eyes, sparkling eyes, Leah's were considered less desirable. Now we're speaking of this familiar narrative where Jacob as a young man is starting his own love story. And let's look at the, an Abraham family tree just to get our bearings. So it goes from Abraham to Isaac. Isaac marries Rebecca. Isaac, Rebecca has a brother named Laban. Then down to Jacob between Isaac and, and, and uh, Rebecca. Laban has these two daughters, Rachel and Leah, and we're about to populate 
uh, a lot of 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 the of the county, so to speak, with with the story. Um, now Jacob becomes the father of Joseph. Joseph is the eleventh son. Now, if you do the math, that means ten others are born previously. And here's how it came about: verse eighteen of Genesis twenty-nine. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said to Laban, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Now I'm going to let Jeff explain after class how seven years could seem like just a few days. Um, And I speak of that because... Due to circumstances beyond our control, Leah and I, my Leah, were engaged for over a year, and that didn't seem like just a few days, you know? So I'm not quite sure how it did to him, but it says because of his love for her, uh, it, seemed, it seemed like a few days, and that's fortunate for Jacob's heart, right? Seven years is a long time. Think what you were doing seven years ago, right? That's a, that's a long time to wait. But after the seven-year period, verse 21, that Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed, that I may go into her. So how did Laban respond to this request? Well, not as one would expect. He does do the proper thing here. Verse 22, Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. So far, so good. Now in the evening he took his daughter, get ready for it, took his daughter Leah, and brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? And deceived he was. The verb deceived is the same stem used to describe Jacob's deception of Esau when he stole Esau's blessing. Kind of like what goes around comes around, and you reap what you sow. And deception aside, just how did Laban pull this off? I was going to leave it to Jeff to explain that one too. Um, But we're going to ask commentator Kent Hughes who says this, Evidently, Laban used the veiling of the bride, the lateness of the hour, and likely much wine, remember the feast, to effect the switch, and it worked perfectly. Ken Hughes goes on to say, As to what Laban did to restrain Rachel, we do not know. Now think about that, right? You've got this feast going on, and Rachel's probably wondering, And more, Leah had to be the most willing bride. She must herself have loved Jacob and likely despised her beautiful sister. You know, this is quite a deal we've got going here. And so in, to Jacob's three-part rapid-fire question, Laban responds in verse 26, but Laban said, It is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the work of this one, and we'll give you the other Also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him 
his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. Wow. Certainly not what Jacob expected. He had worked and waited patiently for seven years, only to learn that he'd need to work another seven for the bride of his choice. Now this bride not of his choice, less desirable in beauty in some way, less loved, but she had participated in Laban's deceitful scheme. The bride of choice, beautiful, loved, and with these two brides come two maids, soon to be concubines, and we will see we're going to have four competing mothers. A few days ago, Jacob was unmarried. Now within the span of days, he gets all of this. And with seven more years to go before he is free from his servitude to Laban. Now this is a recipe for some pretty tough sledding. Now the comforting point is our Lord is a gracious God. Psalm 145.8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. And we see an example of that here, verse 31. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And we have a chart of Jacob's family. This is a chart that I... Jeff was gracious enough to loan me. We're going to look at these, these birthing moms, starting with Leah, chapter 29, verse 31. 32. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Now this is the first quad. Reuben's Simeon, Levi, and Judah. I found it easier to keep these groups uh, separated into smaller groups to, to keep these, all these sons in mind in, in their place. Now the way the text eliminates all other signs of daily life during all of this birthing of this four, in our instant microwave thinking minds, it would lead us to believe that all four of these sons were born like in an afternoon or something, right? <laughs> But, but it wasn't. And uh, thus far, Leah has done all the childbearing, and that is about to change. Rachel via Bilhas. And here's the narrative, Genesis 30, verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And can't you just imagine the jealousy intensifying uh, with each birth, right? It's growing in magnitude as each of Leah's sons were growing in, in Leah's womb during the four gestation periods. 
And following the birth of the fourth, Rachel said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Now the anguish of a barren woman now bursting out to her beloved husband. And Jacob responds in a way that many men would do when they don't know how to respond. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? See, Jacob, loving Rachel deeply, surely feels her longing and her disappointment, along with his own at not having children through her. And we're about to enter in quite a chess match with maids now being used, as Kent Hughes describes, pawns in a birth war. Verse 3, she said to Jacob, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So he gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Jacob said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. It's interesting, I've wrestled with my sister. You just feel the the tension and the competition going on amongst, amongst these ladies. Okay, so we have now two more sons born. We're... We're halfway to our 12. The score is 4-2. to two. But a two-point lead in a birth war was not enough for Leah. For we read in verse 9, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Is it okay if I remain puzzled on this one? Why does Leah feel the need for more children and why does Jacob believe that this is a good idea to try to have children versus Zilpah nonetheless Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son then Leah said how fortunate so she named him Gad Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son then Leah said happy am I for women shall call me happy so she named him Asher thus we have two more sons born this makes up our middle quad Dan Naphtali Gad and Asher and we can call them the sons of the maids and if our math is correct Leah is leading now six to two so are we good have we had enough of the birth wars No, and it's going to get a bit more interesting before it ends. And just what's up with the mandrakes? All right, verse 14. Now in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. I've got a question. Have you ever thought you knew what something was? like forever, and then you realize you had no idea what it was. That's me and mandrakes, (laughs) right? 
I always thought it was some kind of a baked good that was being exchanged here or something. Um, why I thought that, I have no clue. But this is a, a mandrake. It's a, it's a plant. And I went to the Illustrated Bible Dictionary and Treasury of Biblical History, Biography, Geography, Doctrine, and Literature for the answer of just what this is. It's Hebrew, Deuteum, and I practiced that, I promise, and, it, and I know that's not right, but also known as love plants. It only occurs here in Genesis 30. Many interpretations have been given of this word. It has been rendered violets, lilies, jasmines, truffles, or mushrooms, flowers, the citron, etc. The weight of authority is in favor of it being regarded as the mandragora officinalis of botanists a near relative of the nightshades, the apple of Sodom, and the potato plant. It possesses stimulating and narcotic properties. The fruit of this plant resembles the potato, potato apple in size and is a pale orange color. It has been called the love apple. For this reason, certain aphrodisiac properties were ascribed to it and thus worth trading for. Verse 15, but Leah said to Rachel, is it a small matter for you to take my husband and would you take my son's mandrakes too? So Rachel said, therefore he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. Now, let's just say this is an odd arrangement of, of these four women in Jacob's life and it's pretty clear that Rachel controls who sleeps with Jacob and, and when. And, and Leah apparently has been shut out for some time, and she gets permission to be with Jacob in exchange for these mandrakes. So in this desperation of birth, war, birth wars, an odd arrangement is made. Leah gets her night with Jacob, and Rachel gets her mandrakes. We can only assume that she believes that she, this will be advantageous to arouse desire in Jacob at a later time. But do these mandrakes really work? Kent Hughes says this, the Bible makes it clear that their beliefs in mandrakes are old wives' tales because Leah, who gives up the mandrakes, has two more children. And Rachel, who has the mandrakes, remains childless for three more years. So much for these love apples, writes Kent Hughes. But the deal is made, Jacob is hired. Kent Hughes goes on to say, tellingly, it's Rachel who again suggests the ungodly expedient and it is a further example in this family of trading in things that should be above trade and resorting in trouble only half-heartedly to God. He says the family ethics here seem more like those of a dog kennel. I don't think he's far off. Um, we'll bring up our, our slide of the, of the wives again. Leah, again, verse 16, When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. Pause again. Can you just imagine the challenge of having these four different women in your life? You'd, you'd come home from work and you wouldn't, wouldn't be sure with whom you're going to be living with. 
at any given time. But the verse goes on to say, So he lay with Leah that night. And a gracious God is again gracious. Verse 17, God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Now Issachar means wages. And this was likely a dig at Rachel that Leah had to hire Jacob to be with her. Verse 19, then Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. So two more sons for Leah brings her sons to eight and the total to ten. And then in the midst of all this masculinity, a daughter is born. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Now to Rachel. Verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel and gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. Kent Hughes writes, This is Rachel's first. Rachel, in her deep lowliness of her barrenness, had been praying for a child. Her petition was no doubt daily and maybe even hourly. And God answered. So she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Hughes goes on to say, Rachel had come to the end of herself. The beautiful, favored wife had given up on her devices. There were no surrogates, no mandrakes. Everything was of God, pure and simple. Both Leah and Rachel had children only because God did it. Both had been visited in their low estate. This was grace alone. All was of God. So we have 11 sons listed now. And we're going to stop there um, in this background in birth wars. Now we don't need to feel badly for Benjamin who would be born later. He'll get his due press in due time. But for the background needed for Today, 11 is enough. And that may have just been my longest introduction ever. (laughs) We're going to look at problems in the pasture. Genesis 37, verse 1, Jeff covered in our introduction last week. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. So Jeff and Tom Pennington style took, took the whole hour to cover one verse. I'm going to do thrice better covering three. <laughs> These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Now why is generations important? Well, this is... Um, like the ninth occurrence of that phrase that we've, that Genesis has, these are the generations of we, generations of Noah, or Adam first, Noah, sons of Noah, Shem, Torah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob. Now it's not unusual to mention generations of one, but describe the life of the son. 
We saw this in the generation of Isaac was taken up mostly with his son Jacob. And here Joseph will be the focus preserving and saving the generation of Jacob. And yet, Father Jacob plays a prominent role as this narrative unfolds. And Jacob and the brothers are woven throughout this storyline as we look at the life of, of Joseph. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Joseph was 17. God wants us to know that. He also wants us to know he's a youth. And this youth was a shepherd pastoring the flock. And Joseph comes from a long line of shepherds before him and that will come also after him. Abel was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. We're going to see Moses, David, were each of them shepherds. This is a family business. And he was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Not only is it a family business, it's a lonely business. And if you're not with your brothers, you're probably not with anybody. And who was Joseph with? Well, the text says, with his brothers. And with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Now the text isn't clear if the four older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah were there. But the text wants us to know that Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher were there. And why is this significant? Well, A.W. Pink talks about this, because you remember these were the, the sons of the maids. From all that we have hitherto seen of them, they must have been utterly unfit companions for such a youth. Jacob's elder sons had naturally been affected by the life in Haran, by the jealousy at home, by the scheming between Laban and Jacob. There are few people more unfitted for influence over younger brothers than elder brothers of bad character. And Kent Hughes adds, Though full sons, these men had a secondary status in Jacob's affections. And these four sons of Bilhah and Zilpah knew it and resented it. Quite naturally then, the four had little regard for young Joseph, the son of the father's favorite wife. You know, this is a tenuous situation, which, one which should require much delicacy. You know, there's a popular leadership book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, by Dale Carnegie. I don't think Joseph read it. <laughs> but he might have read the less well-known book, How to Gain Enemies and Infuriate People. <laughs> and one is to tattle on them. Verse 2, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. We'll call that strike one. You know, commentators differ as to whether this was a true tattling. That is, did Joseph have ill will, Ill will in mind? Because many have trouble putting, putting negative intent on Joseph. They nearly elevate him to, to sainthood, right? Just because the Scripture doesn't record overt sin or, or criticize him. Um, Hughes writes, such reckoning, of course, is contrary to what Scripture teaches about the sinful nature of all people and what we know about the daily sins and repentance of the most godly. At best, Joseph, young Joseph was a good boy sinner. 
And some say he was likely simply following his father's instructions to keep an eye on things and to brief the father. His father would ask him to do this later. We'll see this in, in another week or so. Verse 14, then his dad's father said to Joseph, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back. So it, it wasn't uncommon, at least he's going to do it in the future, that perhaps that's what was going on here. But the text is helpful, too, for guidance. It says Joseph brought back a bad report about them. Now, the word report is always used in Scripture in the negative sense. We, when the um, spies came back um, from spying out the land in Numbers 13, so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land they'd spied out. That's the context for that word report. And then the qualifier and the adjective bad or, or evil uh, before that, um, it just suggests some ill will. Hughes writes, thus Joseph misinterpreted and so maligned his brothers. Likely his report was essentially true, but not perfectly so due to exaggeration or inaccuracies. So young Joseph, in effect, became a tattler. And we can imagine how this went over with the sons of the maids. This was no small offense against them in their eyes. And we can be quite certain that they didn't keep it to themselves, but shared it among the other brothers. And this transgression became bigger and worse with each retelling. And the story got bigger, and Joseph's stature in their eyes Got lower. But how else can to gain enemies and infuriate people? Well, it's to be the favorite of your father's sons. Now Israel, and we know him also as Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons. Now just a quick mention of this. It was just in Genesis 35 where Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Genesis 35.9 Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Now, throughout the narrative in, in Genesis, we'll see the names Jacob and Israel used interchangeably. There is a pattern, a, a general pattern that's helpful. Um, when Jacob is used, it's usually on an occasion when Jacob's human weakness is prominent. Um, that tip is free, by the way. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Strike two. Favoritism. It can cause problems in, in any family. And it had done so for generations in this family tree. Remember, Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. However, Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau. Jacob loved Rachel and her children more than Leah and her offspring. 
Israel, now also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. Now we could see why Joseph could rise as a favorite, why there would be this inclination. It was Rachel that Jacob had fallen in love with before he found himself surrounded by not only Rachel, but the other three women. Now Rachel, from Rachel, Joseph was born. Rachel had died in childbirth when their second son together, Benjamin. Um, Joseph was a constant reminder of his first love, Rachel. Joseph had been born later in Jacob's life. And Joseph had not been high maintenance like the half-brothers had brought upon Jacob. Nevertheless, Jacob's guard should have been up. Why? Because he grew up in conflict caused by his own father's favoritism. The warning light should have been on for him. But instead of the warning light going off to guide Jacob against favoritism, Jacob instead drapes his favorite with bells and whistles of favoritism. And he made him a very colored tunic. Now we often think neon, right? When we think of this coat. Perhaps that's because of the Broadway smash musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Now, did the coat really have many colors? Maybe. In truth, this designation is arbitrary and comes from the Septuagint and the Vulgate translations. The word can also mean long-sleeved, likely reach the wrists and the ankles, and according to one commentator, thus setting Joseph apart as the one who would receive the double portion of the inheritance. Joseph replacing Reuben as the firstborn? Well, remember, Reuben had forfeited his birthright because of incest with the maid Bilhah. So into the ring of half-brothers who had continued to fuel their disdain for Joseph from the tattling walks the tattler wearing the vestige of privilege over all of them. And verse 4 says, His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now these three outcomes from Jacob's behavior. The brothers witnessed Jacob's preference. The brothers hated Joseph because of it. The brothers shunned Joseph because of it. And at the risk of stealing Gary's thunder for next week, this hatred was not a quick flash in the pan, but a roaring flame. And to not be able to speak to him on friendly terms, this literally is saying they could not abide his friendly speech. That is, they rebuffed every attempt for him to be, of his to be friendly. And they loathed his presence. The sinful and likely exaggerated tattling on the brothers combined now with the overt favoritism and elevation of Joseph served to harden the half-brothers in their disdain and their bitter hatred. And the stage is set for what comes next. And we'll leave it there for Gary to take and carry the baton. By way of application... The story of Joseph is tucked in a, a larger story, tucked, tucked in amongst various and multiple generations. We've got the four generations of Abraham's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob, Joseph, each of those in the hall of faith, right? Hebrews 11. And you, you and I are both, are all uh, part of generations ourselves, whether the generations of Milton's, Scarborough's, Amac's, your own generations. And you and I and our ancestors won't be recorded in the Bible. But if faith in Christ, we will be written in the book of life. And what we have seen here that is that life is messy. There is sin in us. There is sin around us. But we've seen God orchestrating in this. And those 12 brothers come 12 tribes. Even with a messy start, the family ethics like those of a, a dog kennel, think how God used these 12 for example, to fill out and oversee the promised land with the 12 tribes, each apportioned portions of the land. That the new heaven will be decorated with 12 stones representing the tribes. All of these tribes play an important place in God's plan. Consider this, 12 sons and one daughter would be born to four women. Though unloved, Leah and her maid Zilpah, eight of the 12 tribes would come. Leah would be the mother of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. Despised Leah was the hereditary mother of the kingly tribe of Judah and the priestly tribe of Levi. This makes her ultimate offspring Moses, David, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, God works God's work goes on and even thrives amidst human failure. And though we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph for several weeks and months, the ultimate reference point is that of Christ from the tribe of Judah. Think of this, through all of this came the answer to man's sin problem. How to be made right with a holy God. God Himself provided the answer in sending His Son, right? Who lived for 33 years. He didn't just come on Friday, die, and go back on Sunday, but He lived 33 years, living the life we should have lived, the sinless life, so that He could be a substitute for us, giving Himself in His death, His burial, and resurrection in our place. The only holy one in the whole story, in the whole Bible, is, is Jesus. It's not Jacob. It's not Joseph. And while the ladies in Jacob's life were building a disjointed family among a polygamous mess, the Lord was accomplishing His design purpose and sovereignly building a nation. And in our own stories, the one being played out in our own lives, the only holy one is still Jesus. It's not you. It's not me. Indeed, God's work goes on and even thrives amidst human failure. But though we're not holy, the good news is we can be treated as if we are righteous because of the great exchange, right? That perfect life lived was given so that our sins could be placed on His account. And in exchange, His righteousness could be put on our account. So when God looks at us, He doesn't see our sinfulness 
but Christ's righteousness, and thus claiming us as His. Yeah, God marches His will through time, through generation. It's not a pretty picture, but it is a faithful picture. God's faithfulness to His eternal plan. I'd like to close by this poem by William Copper. It's called, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in an unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He fashions up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. Father, we, we just thank You that You are God and sovereignly so. Father, in an odd way, we are encouraged by walking through this what looks like a mess of birth wars. Father, with, with jealousy and, and competition and favoritism, Yet in the midst of, of that, even their half-hearted pleas to You, Father, You were gracious and You heard and You opened wombs. And Father, indeed, You were working out Your sovereign will, building a nation. And Father, that gives us great hope as we look even at our own lives and the sin in us, the sin around us, the challenges that we face. Father, we look to You, the Holy One the Sovereign One, and we take great comfort that You are indeed working out Your eternal plans for, for Your glory and our good. We give You praise in Christ's name. Amen.